Okay, hello and welcome to episode 24 of Dano Says So. My guest this week is one of those rarities um, amongst a large body of people I've known for a long time. I have known this guest since the early 80s, since the first half of the 1980s. Um, he will be most commonly recognizable to people here as the vocalist of Final Conflict, the bassist of Lower Class Brats. He is also a mover and shaker in getting things done in the music scene as the proprietor of Crawl Space Booking. So, Ron Martinez, thank you for doing this. Hey, Dan. Um, when I go on and on about early on and about early Orange County, what people who only know you through these entities that have records out or that, you know, book your band, book the bands and do business with you won't know is that ever since we were all kids, you were the first one in Orange County to step up to, just, to help just about anybody. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I've been playing in bands, like, I've wanted to be in a band, like a musician, since I was like four or five years old, like I'd been listening to music avidly and buying records at, at that age, like, I'm not exaggerating, but so I've always been a music fanatic, but uh, with like, you know, the first couple bands that I, I did in, I, I was in like garage bands, party bands with friends, and then I joined uh, as the singer of this this local band called Convicted. I remember Convicted well. Yeah, like, I, and I, I, I was actually, uh, they, I had known them because I was like, we'd go to all their parties and became friends with them. When they decided they were going to reform, they asked me to be the singer. That led to me intersect. We both intersected with the Final Conflict guys who were already a full-fledged band playing local shows, mm -hmm. became friends with them. And then I ended up joining Final Conflict. And it was in between that time, like those two bands is how I learned how to kind of like get your band on shows, how to promote shows and right. and stuff. Because it was like, you know, figuring out uh, how, how do I get to play with my favorite bands? Well, some figuring it out was like, sometimes, sometimes you got to organize the show yourself. So that's what we were doing. And I just kind of gatewayed that throughout you know my quote music career if you want to call it that is when i see something i like it's like i'm a human mixtape and i want other like i like this band i want you to hear this band because i was always that kid even in high school i was making mixtapes for my friends like when a new seven inch came out when the minor threat seven inch came out when rudimentary penis first seven inch came out i would make mixtapes or we trade you know records and and turn each other on so that was just a, what I do now, even with Crawl Space. It's just an extension of that, where, hey, I dig this band. I, I want to introduce them to you and working with them. So back back then, like it's in the 80s when we were kids, yeah, I, I just, it was just a natural thing. It was like, I want to see this band succeed. I want to help this band. It was never out of uh, any, it was, you know, never out of any self-aggrandizing uh thing trying to be a, a mover shaker player it, it never came off as such what i think would be news to people that was the, the diversity of it is um i'm gonna try and dig it up and drop it on screen during the interview but for instance like you mentioned minor threat right well i mean a lot of people's perception of final conflict is sort of a discharge conflict looking visual presence jeff's artwork certainly lends itself to sort of all that the, the anti-nuke like sort of propaganda layouts of the 80s, which is awesome stuff, right? But if you yeah. look at old pictures of the Minor Threats 83 run in California, like live shots, you have to look hard to find you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that is really weird, like that, that photograph of me and Pat Dubar uh, mm -hmm. at that show. Um, and it, it, it's funny, like that, that, that's a whole podcast itself, like learning about that photo's existence. But, right. but yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, I grew up a music fanatic and I like, I like lots of music. I like lots of different music. And you and I both had the luxury of getting involved in a punk music scene where I, I even say we didn't have the luxury of being, of having so many bands to be able to listen to at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. And speaking just, to now. yeah, you, yeah, you couldn't just be dismissive. And so uh, there was no, uh you know there was breaking up the genres and it, like it is now like now you have hardcore post-hardcore you know uh raw punk you know db you know all this stuff back then it was just punk or hardcore punk 
I think that was like the first thing when it changed when it was called hardcore punk, which meant that like bands like The Bags and The Weirdos were punk, mm-hmm. but bands like Black Flag and The Circle Jerks were hardcore punk because right. they played faster. And it was all punk, you know, like Minor Threat was punk, Agnostic Front, you know, New York City's The, the Mob, Kraut, punk, Antidote, punk. You know, it, it all came from the same thing. Um, you know, and, and we were both like, you know, young guys in the Orange County scene. And, mm-hmm. and uh, this gets brought up to me a lot, like back in those days, early days of Final Conflict, mm-hmm. people seeing flyers with, you know, and it would say like Bellinia Banquet, no for an answer, right. you know, half off. And every mm-hmm. band was different, but we were all in the same boat. We were all a bunch of genuine m- misfit, rebellious mm-hmm kids yeah but what i don't see you taking up ownership when you say that is the fact that some of those flyers were like that is you personally you were heavily involved in, in our in no for an answer's first forays into places like fenders you mixed the sound at the very fixed no, first no for an answer show and made sure we didn't just sound ridiculous and that the sound men didn't blow us off you helped really get hooked you know you 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 cross lines and the where i'm going with this is it only took till say 88 or 89 before that freaked people out and they would say, what the hell? Can you get this guy, one of these godfathers, what's going on in Orange County, who will help anybody he deems to be legitimate or sincere about it? And this music was starting to get taken over by people who were only promoting their own kind. I mean, I, I fell in heavy with the Revelation group and with those, with those kids from back east. And for the longest time, you couldn't get shit done with them unless you looked like them. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing I've, I've talked about in another podcast, that era, and that was like, that was ushered in. I, I, I remember having, like, this is a, a, I don't know, a 15-year-old conversation I, I had with uh, an, another, a, a guy, a prominent New York guy, like, figure mm-hmm. in the hardcore scene. Right. And I, I brought up, you know, uh, uh, I brought up Youth of Today, and I just said, you know, as much as I liked Youth of Today and break down the walls, I, I remember here like, getting the 7-inch, the can't close my eyes and thinking it was okay. But then hearing the, the advanced cassette of Break Down the Walls, and went, oh, man. Like, yeah, holy, it was, it was a thousand this is good shit, you know. But then those guys, you know, they spent a lot of time. A lot of, your, a lot of that was at your house. Uh, you know, they, they pretty much coexisted on the West Coast. They kind of like their band kind of it was the, That was when I always said, that's when the jocks picked up the guitars and became a part of the punk scene. And... Um, I'm not trying to make it personal against those guys, right. but, but you were there, I was there. And the thing was, is, and, and you could see interviews with those guys then, and you could see it now. Um, I think that the cool thing about them hardcore and punk is it should be non-exclusionary. Like whether you like sports or you don't, or you want to wear track suits. But the thing is, is they kind of helped ushered in with this, this kind of um, frat boy, jock mentality came along mm-hmm. and they didn't diminish they didn't get rid of that they brought that with them and and that's where the whole division between punk and hardcore kind of started you know and it's, like, it's interesting because their own background in those days you didn't end up in shaven headed you know cut off shorts punk rock or hardcore without having made a lengthy stay in punk rock i mean in violent children days and everything else those guys were full-blown punk rockers you know, yeah. But by the but by then, and I think to their credit, one thing there's been I don't think they see any upside in that division of those distinctions now. And an interesting thing I would ask you about is everybody now that this whole thing has been kicking around for forty years or so, is everybody is doing their own revisionist history where they're swinging back and announcing a long-standing and internal romance with early punk rock, or with Oi, you know, or with even the '70s stuff. That frankly, I didn't see them wearing on their sleeves back when they made their bones, you know. Yeah, I, I get kind of, you know, it depends on the individual and the band with, with yes. some of these guys that, that come back, you know, that come back. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite all right to like stop playing punk rock music or mm-hmm. stop playing hardcore and to, mm-hmm. to go play something else, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I, I do. I think I, I see nothing wrong with that. What I, what I take, you know, offense to is there are specific guys who left the scene, mm-hmm. trash-talked it, mm-hmm. and, and, and treated it like it was a shitty ex-boyfriend-girlfriend. You know, right. 
Then they decide to come back and start playing hardcore again, or either reunite their band or like whatever. And then they start self-proclaiming about, uh, you know, who they were and like, you know, the hardcore legends are back. And there's quite a few of these bands that I'm just like, dude, I specifically remember you playing a show and yelling at the crowd for fucking slam dancing and calling it, calling them idiots. And, and then now you want to like put on your flyers, punk rock legends, like, yeah, okay, whatever. There there will be at least 10 different people who watch this and assume that you're speaking about them. And at least nine of the cases, you might be wrong. It it is, it is a phenomenon. It it is a commonality. I mean, you and I have had this exact discussion about a band that China's, the China's played without a state. Yeah. And, 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 and have played with again. But there will be people watching this who think you're talking about them, and it's, it's an interesting thing. I don't know what it was about the evolution of this music that made people want to wash their hands and then brought them back to the well, but as I get older, I'm trying, like even some of the stuff we've already discussed here in our first 10 minutes, I go, Jesus, you know, you weren't going to talk that shit anymore. Or at least going to talk it with, a, with, with an aged perspective. Like for forever, I would rail against the reunion moments, right? And it's still not really my cup of tea. But now I'm thinking, yeah, why aren't you remembering that you believe in people having total control over anything they've created? That was the flag you waved when, you know, I signed to a, a, a label with me with, with, with major label connections. And then it was all about, I own this music and I can do whatever the fuck I want. with it. Well, I may not agree with what some people are doing with their music or when they come back to it or revisit it after 20 years. But if I'm true to my word, it's theirs to fucking do it. Yeah. And I'm, I, I really do like, I, you know, I, I try to be careful with my opinion because when it comes down to when, if no one's harming anybody but themselves, you know, teach them, bands can do what they want. They can stop playing punk rock or hardcore or whatever and come back. Because um, you also remember, there were certain bands that stopped and they drift for specific reasons. Like um, uh, there was like a wave of hardcore that and we we tend to make fun of it where every band wanted to be u2 for a while remember but but if you weren't there yeah yeah. but if you weren't there you needed to understand that people were getting tired of um, you know there was a stretch of time where the shows were so violent and Mm -hmm. they just wanted to play yeah let's just wanted to play and and playing wasn't fun and the shows were nothing but you know 10 on 10 on 10 fights gang fights like three a night Mm -hmm. you know so you know, I don't blame, I, I don't give bands, I don't give Kevin Second shit for wanting to do right. Life Fair or even Justice League went that route, you know? Like, there was a whole wave of bands that, they, you know, they, they did record titles with these Robert Frost-sounding, you know, poetry lyrics and stuff, and it wasn't my cup of tea, but I remember it was just, we, they just wanted to play, and in the context of hardcore punk, they couldn't. But that's that time is is gone too and and a lot of those guys like i don't want to hear like i don't want to hear seven seconds do their melodic crap i want to hear skins brains and guts and the crew and you know kevin came back to that and was like killing it like the last few years of seven seconds the last three records they did like studio albums were great great for that final album that final album is, is is in fairly regular rotation with me let's talk about your music it's amazing, okay. and this is this is similar to the Gavin, where you and I are in so many of the same rooms for so many years that we could we could kill the listeners' patience just doing what we're doing right now. You know that you know what I mean? That without without really delving into our own creativity, let's talk about Final Conflict. Sure. All right. Um, that was never the it was that was a, there was a big scene in Orange County that that, that supported. I don't want to say bands of that ilk because you had your own identity, but there was a there was a predictable faction that supported that supported that band, and there was a broader faction that sort of supported that band, and people still have a passion for that band. Why do you think that is? You know, I I I really don't know. I just feel really fortunate that there that we did reach a kind of a broader scope than just like political punks you know like mm-hmm. a lot I, I always come across like hardcore you know hardcore band members and fans that like tell me they love the band it, even some of the weirder places where like, i might get introduced to another musician mm-hmm. and a friend will say oh ron ron is uh 
you might know him as a singer Final Conflict. And I'm thinking to my, in my head, I'm like, oh man, why did he have to say that? He doesn't know the fuck we are. And then that guy will go, oh my God, I bought Ashes to Ashes direct from Pusshead on mail order. Like, holy fuck. Like, I heard your name being mentioned. I was like, no, nah, it's not the same Ron Martinez, you know, like, and it, it's just weird that I'll meet some people and they, when they hear my name, they automatically lock it to Final Conflict. And I just, I mean, dude, we're just, just dudes from Southern California. And, and I was, you know, I feel really fortunate that Jeff wanted me to be in his band because the band was already like, when I joined Final Conflict, there was already a set list. There was already music and lyrics written all by Jeff because mm-hmm. I remember asking Jeff, like, why do you write all the lyrics? And he was like, well, because nobody else will, the singers I got don't write them. So when I, I walked in, to, um, I walked in to fill a spot, but I wanted to be there. Like I used to watch Final Conflict rehearse and I was just like, man, I, you know, I was currently at the time I wasn't convicted and I would always like, oh, I wish convicted sounded like this and, and, man, if I was in this band, that would be so awesome. And then a, a drunken night, one drunken night at the Olympic Auditorium, mm-hmm. we're hanging out and, and Dave Phillips, who was the drummer on Ashes to Ashes, and, and he was in Convicted with me, we're hanging out with Jeff for Final Conflict and we just drunkenly say, man, we wish our band was as good as your band and fuck, man, I, we'd love to be in your band. And Jeff just looks at us and is like, are you fucking with me? And I'm like, huh? we're like, no. And he's like, because he goes, because I would love to have you guys in my band. And then the next thing we know, like a week later, Jeff calls me and goes, hey, were you serious about wanting to join Final Mm -hmm. Conflict? I'm like, yeah, why? And he goes, I'll call you back in an hour. And then 30 minutes later, he calls me up. He goes, all right, I just kicked out the drummer and the singer. Rehearsals in three days. (laughs) See, that's that's a scary level of decisiveness to walk into. But but you see that's like that's like the it's kind of fucked as that is because those two guys like weren't they didn't know what was coming right you know and they just like you're out of the band um, the thing was is that's like a young man's actions a young man's mistakes you know like mm-hmm. or I mean not a mistake I mean but that's like that's the the beauty of the, the youth that you can do that you'll do things like that without had Jeff maybe been a little bit older he might have went ah oh, well. I might have to think about this differently. I can't just up and let, and Jeff was like, no, this is the singer I want. This, and this drummer is way better than the drummer I have. And I want this band to kill it. I think it will with these guys. Cause when Dave and I joined. Well, he wasn't, I was saying, he wasn't wrong. Band, like, you know, yeah. within, within a month and a half, we recorded that demo tape that, okay. that got faded everywhere and got, you know, Puss had blew it up and was getting all this indie press, like, you know, indie punk press within a month and a half, like we were, you know, and it, it just, I guess for that time, it, it, we went, we got popular pretty quick because we, we were just working hard, like rehearsing three days a week, mm-hmm. putting out flyers and going to shows. So again, that, you know, and I just wanted like, I, I saw what we were doing and what was happening for us. I wanted to see it happen for other bands that I thought were fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I first saw No For An Answer, you know, I remember going, fuck, these guys sound like negative approach, but even angrier, like, you know, and I was like, holy shit, like, I gotta, you know, I gotta help these guys before they steamroll me, <laughs> my, my band, and blow well, us you, out of the water, like, you, I want to be right alongside this band. Yeah, you so know? You, were in the stu- you were in the studio with us, you were, you were instrumental, so eternal thanks for that. I'm, I'm just grateful to have been a part of it, you know, I love that 7-inch. And that's kind of like something every once in a while I'll pull it out when I'm talking to someone who's like, if Revelation comes up, you know, mm-hmm. I, I pat myself on the back. I go, oh, yeah, you like that note for an answer, seven inch? And they're like, yeah. I go, yeah, I actually helped those guys in that. I was like, kind of right, sort yeah. of produced that thing. And they're like, what? Oh, man, I have to look, you know, like, it's always. Look close. Yeah. You know? So, so it's cool, you know, I, I gives me a little street cred, you there know. You go. Well, vice versa. Um Let's talk about that. Okay. First off, and I know there were, and even in an interim, like, I don't know what it was during a falling out. I don't want to take one of it, but I know before you and, and, and at different times, there have been other vocalists in final conflict. I've never seen anyone else sing for final conflict and it made an impression. It was an interesting thing. Remember that, uh, that, uh, constellation room show with, with negative approach. 
Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, we we took the photo together and everything else. But up front, and I was like, holy shit, I still know every word to every one of these fucking songs. You know, so it's, it's, there is a, there is a stain to the positive. Um, where I'm going with that is you have that, you did a, you did a record on my label, which you were kind enough to give us. You sang on a seven inch on my label with Shocking Truth. You have tons of mileage as a singer. As a singer myself, I can't imagine hopping on bass. So, I mean, how, how is it, how the hell does that work? Um, you know, I always would have a bass because, um, the reason why I bought a bass was I wanted, I would have these song ideas in my head and I remember reading or hearing, you know, what I would, I would see like Jello, I remember reading an interview or something with Jello Biafra or, or the Dead Kennedys and they, you know, he had songwriting credits and I found out that the way he would do it, he would actually sing the songs to the band members, like the tune he had in his head. Okay. He didn't play an instrument and then they would figure it out. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, too chicken shit to actually sit there at rehearsal and go, it goes like this, do, 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 you know? So I was like, I'll buy a bass and then I'll, it's only four strings, two less, easier to play. You could play a whole note just on one string. Mm -hmm. When I have an idea, I could figure it out on the bass and then show it to my band members, you know, and then they could yay or nay it. And so I always had a bass, you know, and then, um, but playing in a band was never an intention. It ended up happening where I did this one fun rock and roll punk band with friends of mine just for fun. You know, played a couple of gigs. It was just a goof off thing. And then um, from that band, another band, 46 Short, who I had been friends with, they kicked out their bass player and they had decided that it was more important to them to have somebody who they liked in the band than maybe someone that could play as well as the guy who replaced. Like when they asked me if I wanted to be in the band, I was like, I barely can play what I do. And they're like, look, if you rehearse with us regularly, you'll get the fucking, you'll get the hang of it. Mm -hmm. And we think it's more important that we have someone we get along with and like than getting another musician. And then we don't know who we end up with. It's like, okay, it makes sense. And it was literally out of the frying pan into the fire with those guys where I was like, shit, I've got to learn how to, you know, I had to learn these songs by ear pretty much and then kind of fell into it. And I really liked it. And so now I I actually, if you tell me, I I like doing both, but when it comes to the live thing, Mm -hmm. um, I really like playing bass because it it gives me the outlet. I get to, I'm a songwriter because I I co-write all a lot of the brat stuff or or even write whole songs um and i get to be on stage or and i get to record and stuff i get all the all the benefits and the and the the, uh catharsis of being in a band but don't have to deal with the responsibility and the burden of being a front man you know so uh, I like that. I can kind of somewhat be the guy behind the curtain and inside, yeah. you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just the bass player. You've been, you've been in lower class brats. Smart. My but, no, I was going to say, you've been in lower class brats for how long? Uh, over eight years, maybe nine now. Okay. And, and that was supposed to be just, uh, I joined cause I was living in Austin at the time and I was gonna, and I hadn't touched my bass in six years after okay. from that. Since moving to Austin, I hadn't touched it was actually considering getting rid of my gear and then the opportunity popped up because the brats had just finished a tour and their bass player at the time had quit via text and would not respond to calls and the band had to play a benefit show for a friend of a friend of ours and there was no way they were going to cancel it so i was like well look i produced your last record and i know most of the songs on my head i think i could wing a 10 12 12 song set and that was the intention. I was just going to play that one show. That was it. And then an Australian tour came up and I was like, Hey, uh, I'll go to Australia with you if you want. You know, I figured free trip to Australia. And they're like, okay, cool. And I'm like, but, but, but after that tour, I, I definitely can't be in the band cause I can't tour. I don't want to tour, can't tour um, long. And the end result was the, 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 the tour in Australia got canceled but I ended up staying in the band because the band came to me and the brats said, we don't want to be a full-time touring act. We just want to do say four to six weeks a year. And um, would you, if you could 
pull that off, would you, would you be interested in staying? And I was like, yeah, I can. And we, we do have a plan B in case there's a, I can't make a show. Like actually we were, we did a weekend of shows in, uh, in Asia and I had to like, literally last minute I had to get, I had to bail on it. So our second guitar player, Fred, um, he, he switched to bass and the band just went as a four piece and it was a family emergency type thing. So couldn't do it. But, um, yeah, I, I, there are pe- I've had people say, I don't know, it's just weird seeing you in a van and you're not the front person. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, you know? Yeah. They, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, but I like doing both, but I, I genuinely prefer being a side guy. Um, I'm a, I'm a reluctant narcissist. I want to, I want, I want the attention. I just don't want to appear that I want the attention. <laughs> I, on the other hand, have found peace in that admission. But anyway, um, so you're talking, you know, about this band that you're in. You're talking about Australia, talking about Asia. Um, on, on a really DIY basement level, these things have always occurred. But international travel and the size and scope of punk rock gigs has changed a lot during our lifetimes. Oh, yeah. Um, and the necessities, the practical realities of that have made certain things necessary. Now, I had always imagined the idea of bands having managers or bands having agents as being, well, those are the goofballs or those are the, those are the fools who want to be rock stars or want to be something that this wasn't intended to be. That's a romantic perception. My practical perception, my own experiences in business outside of music and my own experiences with promoters tell me that's not true and that representation and organization is probably a necessary evil. You and I talked about this before we started the interview. You are the best person I know to illustrate how that's a fact. Why don't you tell me about Crawl Space? Tell me about your intentions going into it. Tell me about what it is you're able to do for your bands, what it is you feel is important to do for your bands, and, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. Well, Crawl Space started, which was, uh, the name started was, I was just, you know, I would do local shows for my friends' bands. Like I had access to room, um, like towards the end of me being a promoter, I would do shows like at the Foothill and the Showcase Theater. I would put the bill together, approach the venue or the, you know, with the, hey, I've got this package and then work it out, like work out the money and then run run the gig. Um, it, calling it Crawl Space was a total like fluke. Like, like it was just a... a I'm trying to, it, it, there was really no thought into it. I was on the phone with somebody. I was, I was reserving the night and they were like, okay, so who's presenting the show? And I was like, I'm presenting the show. And they were like, okay, so we put Ron Martinez presents. And I'm like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> and uh, they're like, well, do you have a name for your, your uh, production company? And I, I was reading this, this time life series of, of serial killer books. And I, I had the book open on, on my desk to a chapter about Wayne Gacy, John Wayne Gacy. And the chapter was titled crawl space. And it was just this big ominous font on the page, you know, that said crawl space. And I just looked and I just went, yeah, it's called crawl space, crawl space productions. That was the, that was the beginning that no other thought. I left it at that. Um, And it, it just kind of stuck just for lack of better term and then um you know i was just doing local shows for a while what ended up happening was certain bands would that i would book they would be on tour they would say uh whenever i do shows with you your shows are always our best shows like they're the most organized we get paid the most you know like the rest of our tour we booked it ourselves and one band confessed to me that because I eventually started snowballing and I would book like the LA, Orange County. I would book shows for the band all the way up to, and this is before I was calling it a booking agency, all the way up the West Coast to Seattle. I remember one band saying, the last two tours we've done, we've almost broken up because the tours are a nightmare. And then we always just say, well, let's, we just get to Arizona and we get to where all the Ron shows are and everything's going to be fine. He goes, once we get to your shows, we're getting along and we're getting, we're making money. We're not losing money and we're getting fed. And, you know, that band particularly was like twice. They were like, we've almost broken up on these tours and your shows always save us. Would you book our full U.S. tour? 
And at okay. the time I was doing a, a day job that I just didn't feel I was really, I was really suited for. I was working at Revelation in A&R and um, yeah, and, and A&R is just not really a thing for me. Like I tried it twice and, and I, it just, just didn't work out like I thought. Um, so I was like, you know, I've had this happen multiple times. Many bands have asked me if I book tours for them. Maybe I should just give it a shot. I mean, that's where punk rock comes in, where it's like, why not? And nothing ventured, nothing gained, take a risk. So I, I quit working at Rev and I just decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and make a go of this. I spent some money and bought a Mac, a brand new Mac computer and uh, bought a fax machine. And I just decided I was going to try and book tours for bands and it's steamrolled into, into, into this, like what I'm, what I'm currently, um, thanks to COVID I'm on break from, but it's what I do full time is book tours, United States, Canada, you know, even some foreign stuff, uh, broker for bands. Um, my whole, my whole work ethic on this on crawl space has always been, I work with, I, I've got to either there, there's the, the non-negotiable things is this, I don't have to necessarily be a big, a fan of the music, but I non-negotiable thing is I have to be a fan of what's behind the music of like why the band is playing it. Like if, if it's just some band and I could, and you and I know, like we can smell, we can smell our own and we can smell a phony. I agree. Yeah. If it's, if it's some band that is just doing it, like, because that's, what's big now. And they're just, the music scenes that this type of hardcore or underground metal is their stepping stone to something else. I want nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to work with bands that genuinely believe in what they're doing. Again, it goes back to fighting the good fight. So the artists that I represent, the bands that I do, there's a few whose music I'm just, I'm kind of like, I guess maybe it's age or something. I just don't get it. Or I, I don't think they're reinventing the wheel, but I think they're good at what they do. But the well, people none, of, none of us like Slapshot. You don't have to explain. Slapshot's one of those ones where it was like, man, like I remember going to see those guys the first time they came out to LA and now um, yeah, I get to work with them, which is pretty fucking awesome. And, and, and that's like the cool thing about my job, getting to work with negative approach, you know, mm-hmm. um, getting to turn, getting to turn choke on to a skull crack, turning him in uh, into like a new hardcore band. That's again, it goes back to the human mixtape thing, but yeah, like I don't, I won't take a band on it. I've had occasionally someone say, you should pick up this band. They're going to blow up, man. They're going to be huge. They're going to be the next big thing. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, if if I get to the point, there's been times I've met those next big things, and I've just been like, "Nah, these guys, it's it's going to be oil and water here. Like they, they've got a they've got a vision that I don't want to be a part of, you know. Or uh, and and it's not to say that some of these bands that I've met that I turned down are rotten people. It's just their their goal or and how they want to do it is just not my like. I, it's just not my thing, you know. Would you mind if I if I did some drill down on some of the nitty gritty? Yeah, go ahead. Because my you know my my understanding of, of it is broad at best. So my first question would be, and I come to this with no cynicism. I come to this absolutely mm-hmm. looking to educate myself. So I'm grateful for the conversation. Right? What does crawl space need from a band for it to be worth your time? Because if you're making a living on this, you have to be practical, right? So I, I would imagine you can't deal with every band you want to. So how do you how do you decide this is a not a safe none of them are safe but this is a practical investment of my time and effort. Um, the most important thing that any good manager or a band or you know an, an agent, which I'm an agent, I okay. frequently get I get called them like you manage bands. No, I'm a, I'm a booking agent. I just handle the booking of the shows. Their lives just um, is if you when you see that band, you go, what can I do to help this band? Like, can I help? Because I've actually taken on a couple bands where I've at the gate. I've said, man, I love your band. I, I don't know if if I could help. Like, you're a little different genre than what we're what I'm used to working with or what I'm known for. 
but if you want to take a chance and work with me, I'd love to have a shot because I love your band. And 50% of the time it's worked. And there's been other times where the band just comes and goes, Ron, and I'll be like, you know what? It's time to yeah, break this romance up because it's, you're, we're hitting walls here. We both are. And, and there's no, like. So there's no, there's no, for instance, there's no minimal, minimum or maximum amount of time on the road. There's no, no dependability there's no, of draw factors like yeah. that. And I always try to tell bands that if you can do it yourself, do it yourself as much as possible until you can't until it, it gets like booking the shows or managing the bands, running, running the merch store. When that stuff gets in the way of you being able to be the best band you can be mm-hmm. and hand it over to somebody else. But I'm, I'm a firm believer. Like, I mean, dude, earlier today I did mail order for lower class brats, packed up a bunch of shirts, packed up LPs, you know, and um, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in keeping it DIY. Like, you know, as much as possible. And I, and I even tell bands, like, if you don't need a booking agent, don't get one. If you don't need one, don't. Like, absolutely. But when you do, it, it is, it's, it's imperative to work with someone that actually can help, uh, you know, do that. And what I look for, like I said, certain bands, I'm just like, they don't really need an agent. They don't, maybe they don't play out enough or where, where they're going. I'll, I'll be like, you know what? They need to, they need to, quit not give someone else give someone 10% of the hundred dollars 150 they're getting paid at the moment like it's it I think it's it's better like um for instance there was a band who um in in sometimes it's just like oh they're not ready for an agent you know what I mean mm-hmm. and and that's bitten me on the ass more than a couple times where I paid attention to a band and I was just like they're not ready for an agent and then I waited too long and then that band blew up and I actually had one band that was after me and and we have a personal relationship and uh, I just played busy because I just didn't think they were ready for an agent yet. They didn't need one yet, but I didn't think they were more ready. And um, they, they, they became hugely successful. And uh, the lead singer of the band man was drunk and we were hanging out backstage at a show. Oh man, he let me have it one night. He was like, man, you had your chance. It was like getting yelled at at the girl who was like in high school who was right. like one, and now she's a swan and she's hot and she's like and telling you you had the chance and you blew it. Well, he let me and I was like, you got me, dude. Like I, I didn't think you guys were ready for an agent. I didn't think you guys like were were ready to do what had needed to be done. And, and fucking and I blew it. Like, believe me, I regret not working with you now that you're selling out this theater. You know, it's like. Let, let's get into the task itself. When you're dealing with a location, when you're talking to a venue, when you are booking a tour, what are the important, what, you know, what do you need to bring to the table? What are the things that you need to make sure are clear and are communicated before it's a dotted line situation for your bands? Um, it's just like, you know, Every, every band is different. Every band has um, require like some bands have specific requirements. Some bands don't. Some bands just need a stage and a working PA, and that and, and and they don't care if it's a practice PA or a PA the quality of like the you know the Fonda Theater. Like that's right there. That's negative approach. Negative approach, man. They want a stage and a PA that works, and they're good to go. Like whether it's a VFW hall or yeah, playing opening up for Dinosaur Junior at the front or opening up for Jack White at some stadium in Detroit. You know, those guys like they'll roll. They they're like they roll with the punches. And then I have other bands that like Coxpower or something that that need uh, specific things. You know, so so every show, every tour for a band, like there's always like a list of of requirements or, or that we need, you know, to do. Well, I mean, what, are um, com- what are common snags? I'm kind of run- in pursuing those things. What kind of bullshit do you run into? I think a, a common snag would be making sure that the are that, that the band is booked in the right room. Okay. Like the right room for that band and, and, and things that need to be taken into consideration is of course the capacity and stuff. Um, production like that my main concern is a good quality good PA that's that you can hear that's that you can hear at the very minimum all the vocals and 
hopefully a stage where almost everybody can see the band, you know, can see the band like well and hear them well. Um, and, and, and putting it in, in the room where the, the audience is going to get a quality, the best quality show possible and treated, treated quality as well by the venue, because mm-hmm. there's certain tours that are like bands that I'll go and say, I can put this band in this room, but I can't put this band in this room because their fans might be a little rowdier. And this, this venue is a little more uptight, you know, and they, their security's a little, little uptight and doesn't uh, tolerate the, the, the stage diving as much or whatever, you know? So it, it, it's all like, you know, knowing, knowing what rooms like, cause, cause every once in a while I'll have like somebody like a good example is like, say a booking a tour for leftover crack they come from the DIY scene and I'll get these really cool, awesome, earnest people who will contact me and say, we have a DIY community space. Um, we wanted to host a show, you know, for leftover crack and the band will want to do it. And I'm the guy that has to say, look, the last time you played in this city, you guys sold 700 tickets. This DIY spot only holds 350 and that's like pushing it like illegally recipe for disaster. And the band will say, well, we'll do two nights then. And I'm like, yeah, but your fan base is so wild. Do you, you know, more than three feet, you're going to show up. It's going to be a clusterfuck. Do you want to be the band responsible for getting this DIY spot shut down because you drew too many people and it caused like a problem. And mm-hmm. then, the, you know, Oh shoot. You're right. You want to know something that I think is interesting in this conversation? It was not what I expected, which was that if I kicked open a gate for you to tell me how venues and how owners can suck and what bullshit uh, you have to put up with in trying to get bands or packages nights in places, I thought you'd go buck wild without naming people. And instead, I'm hearing about the band concerns and I'm hearing about how you... Uh, have to sometimes disappoint people that's a good thing kudos it's a it's a positive reflection on your character it makes me think you're better cut out for what you do than i would ever be oh i mean you know there are specific venues i won't work with you know and most of them you know uh but but the but the band makes that decision though. okay you know i do there there's a few venues across the u.s where i have universally a lot of my artists like please never book us at that place and a lot of the times the reasoning is, is they don't want to play specific venues usually over um, quality control because like certain venues that will just let any band play. And these band, these venues have, have reputations of letting sketchy bands play. Okay. Like, and they just don't want to be associated with that. And um, you know, I, I like, I don't like to name names unless it's, it's deemed necessary. Like, I can't see the practical upside. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. Like, there's no point. I, I would much rather talk about a venue, uh, an independently run venue, and how and that is doing something positive for the music community and, and the local community. I would rather talk about that for five minutes than spend one minute trash talking another venue. Yeah, we met each other as angry young shit talkers, so it's a profound disappointment to me that we're talking like grown men. We're yeah, yeah. Hey, man, it took me, you know, took me, you know, I'm, I'm 55 now. It took me 55 years to, like, finally kind of, like, be a grown-up, but it, it's worth it. I mean, yeah, there's certain venues I won't deal with, though, like, you know, even over things just, like, because they might be greedy and their merch percentage, they, they demand a merch percentage, mm-hmm. and and, um, and they don't they don't warrant it. They don't treat the bands with anything, and I just prefer not to use them, but again, it goes right back to the client. If the client wants to play there, right. uh, that's fine. Even or if my I have a client that wants to like take a specific band on tour that I'm just not that you know that I personally don't care for, or maybe don't don't like a band member in it for like whatever reason. That doesn't. Get, I don't get my politics Work involved that okay. in that. But I will if I do. It, it's never come up. But say if a band of mine wanted to take some band that had a really um, had a, a flawed character, I would let them know that. 
Yeah. You know, like, hey, you do realize that this band, you know, attracts this sort of element, you know. And believe me, like, I, I've had to work with some bands that have faced their own uh, controversy. I mean, we're dealing with human beings here. Right. And we're all flawed. So um, I've learned, like I said, be, growing up and being adult, I've learned to not point fingers so much and just try to spend time on doing constructive things and, and trying to, and anyone that knows me, you've known me, you're one of my long, longest standing friends, you know, and like, you've known me, I, I can be quite the curmudgeon and, and some of my younger friends, they look at me as like a curmudgeon, but I really do try to stay positive. It's just sometimes reality is a crushing bitch. Yeah. Well put. Absolutely. You know, as a musician and primarily as a business they're all fucking alone. Yeah. It, it's been, it's been tough and it's, it's, but there are, there are people out there that have it far worse yeah. than what I'm dealing with. Like, luckily I had money put away, you know, not because I was preparing for a pandemic, but I had money saved. Um, and because I'm a business and I have to pay taxes, I was able to, uh, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on the grid. So I was able to get, um, uh, you know, a small business loan. I didn't get any PPP, unfortunately, but I did get a small business loan. The thing was, is that that small business loan, I took it out the lowest amount. Like I was, I was offered a huge amount. I took half of that, only asked for half of that loan because I was like, you know, at worst case, we'll be, we'll be locked down for six months. And look at where we're at now <laughs> you know but anyways um i i'm you know being being a you know a working class you know southern california catholic kid who grew up with working class parents that both worked i've i it's already in my dna to not be a wasteful person to be frugal um uh, to always like um you know never count never count your eggs before they're hatched and it's, it's been, you know, it's been tough, but, um, I've been managed to get by and like financially, like, and I'm going to definitely have to apply for PPP this time around and hopefully yeah. get it like, to stay afloat because I, I, at this point right now, as of today, I don't think we're going to have touring music any earlier than fall. Like, that was actually the last, the last section that I was going to, end on with you and then try and find some kind of a positive note you answered that question i agree with you certainly to, uh, certainly not now sexy to any any level of capacity i mean the venues aren't going to be there and then when they are i'm not sure people are going to feel secure going and they're not going to be able to operate under their prior business models would you agree yeah like there, there will be people who will be still kind of afraid to go and all that and and um you know but you know, it's just, uh, there's so many other people who, who we know and, 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 you know, that, that work as bartenders who work as wait staff that are struggling way harder than us. That, that, I mean, I had, you know, my business, yeah, I had the rug pulled out from under me, I, you know, because of our, our current administration's inability to handle this pandemic as well as they could have, should have unwillingness and all that stuff. But again, I had some money put away and, and did some prepared and, and I was able, you know, uh, to, to get some benefits, but there's other people who worked only in, in like in the music industry that by their own choice, they worked only on a cash basis. They weren't able to get unemployment insurance. Mm -hmm. They weren't able, and they were literally left with nothing like they're, they're, you know, and, and, uh, I've got some people I know that work in the music industry that are now working on farms because that's what they got to do, you right. know? Um, and uh, so, you know, for, I went through a few months ago, I went through some, some depression over it and frustration. <laughs> more than anything, it was frustrating to see that people who were just, not 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 the people who were it's not even so much the people who are uh, saying that this this COVID thing's a hoax and refusing to wear masks that's their choice 
if they if that's what they're they're what what suits them and they want to they want to do that shit that's fine but the lack of respect that they have about maintaining a distance from other people who want to wear a mask who want to practice social distancing and you know they're getting in people's faces they're yelling at like like employees of uh, the supermarkets and stuff that's the stuff that pisses me off and that's the stuff that goes that makes me go it's because of assholes like that 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 me and so many other people are going to have a harder time getting back to work, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it we're all frustrated, we're all angry, we're tired of being quarantined, but they don't even have like this the the, the the consideration just to like stay away from other people that don't right. you know because they because they don't want to wear a mask or anything, and I, I went through some like depression of just like not doing what I what I want to do, not booking tours and not playing live shows and having my income cut to zero. But then I just kind of, you know, I just had to stop that. And I was just like, I just put myself on a program, you know, where I like get up and make sure that I put on my pants in the morning, you know, and a clean t-shirt and brew my coffee and, um, you know, not sit in front of the TV in front of the news for like six hours a day. I'll 30 minutes to an hour max of the news in the morning while I'm doing my wake up. And I, I have my own, like, you know, I play bass a few times, two to three times a week, like writing material. And then as soon as it was deemed safe and because I'm fortunate with the lower class brats, like all the guys in the band in their personal lives, they have extreme, like they have immune compromised family members Mm -hmm. and stuff. They have to be extremely careful. So we discussed it and the rehearsal studio we go to is co- like COVID like regulations, ridiculous. Yeah. Like, and um, so we get together every two weeks and we go to that rehearsal studio. We rehearse with masks on and we've been writing new music. Like the lower class brats have a new album. It's done. It will be out late February, March of next year. It was supposed nice. to be out. It was supposed to be out in the summertime. We decided to delay it because of COVID, but by the time that record comes out, we'll have a whole new album written and recorded and ready yeah, to go. So it, it, I think it's important for, for your, our mental health, like everyone to, to, in its work to make, to, to, to create a new normal life. You know, like I've got a stack of books that like I've had accumulated the past four years, like that I haven't touched. And I've been working on that, like reading, um, you know, up in my, my PlayStation skills, you know, like, but, but trying to stay constructive, you know, and like, well, it, and it's, not a rare, being, it's a rare not opportunity to reboot. You know? Yeah. When this COVID thing happened, I mean, I, I, I thought to myself right, right away, you know, and I was like, this whole thing, it, it might not be like the good, good slash bad thing that'll come out of it is this is going to show us, the people around us true nature of who they are like it's that whole thing is like when the chips are down you see who's got your back and who does it well this was like a matter of like we're gonna see who's got society's back who's got our community's back and fortunately you know within my bubble uh you know of people i haven't had many friends who disappointed me with their polit- like political views or their behaviors, you know, um, not too many. But when we, I break out of that bubble and I have to go and like do something where I uh, intermix with straight society. Yes, it's it's still surprising, like uh, where I'm like, oh, you know, and th- that's like that gets in the that goes in a whole other conversation about social media where we all think that everybody thinks like us because we have created these social media bubbles of only following and not, and not muting people who agree with us. Well, we're massaged by our own self-created algorithms. Absolutely. Exactly. And like, um, it's funny that, uh, you know, because politically I'm very, I'm extremely progressive, you know, I'm, I'm extremely progressive. I'm extremely leftist at that same point. I understand like, it, it's it's funny to see other progressives that have these tantrums about when a politician doesn't do what they want them to do. And they don't realize that like the rest of America isn't progressive. 
Like just because we live in big city and in the big city, the, the majority of America is not progressive. And, and, and ramming our viewpoints, whether we're on the right side of history or not, down their throat is what was a result of, a, of a, how the Republican Party was able to, to allow a cretin like Trump into office. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, it, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I've been people watching like crazy through this whole COVID thing. And like, again, it's just come back to saying like, you were seeing people's true colors and, and believe me, like um, the few people that are disappointed, I've taken notes mm-hmm. and, and like, you know, I'm not going to be like, you know, friends with any of these people anytime soon, you know, any longer. Like I've, I've got new interest, but I've been fortunate. I haven't had it. I haven't, I haven't had to clean house on a whole bunch of people or anything like that. You know, I don't expect people to like, personally, like, you know, I don't, you don't have to think like me. You don't have to agree with me on politics, but I do miss the days when we could, um, we could disagree on policies and disagree on that, but also agree on being good people to each other. And this pandemic is like, resorted in people being just outright shitty to each other like constantly you know it's it's it sucks but you know um it it, it'll it'll change we're already seeing it you know now that uh you know trump's not going to be president you already see the politicians already trying to like distance themselves from him yeah you know they were doing the day we're doing this the day we're doing this interview, you know, a McConnell-led Senate is trying to, you know, override him. It's 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 an interesting and trippy time. Um, yeah, no, like I said, that's a whole thing. But the, all those all those Republicans are complicit. They they wanted they've been wanting this whole thing to happen. They've been wanting it to happen. Like all Trump did was shine a light on what the politics that they've always had the the the, the racism all of that stuff. That's all he did. And what they thought they could get away with was if Trump didn't work out that they could go and say, we had nothing to do with it. The people voted him in. He's an anomaly. No, he is, he is the Republican party. He's like, he is the child of, of Reaganomics and, and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not going to be able to like, that's the main thing that people need to not let any of them, any of them that, that didn't complain when he, you know, took away, took away people's rights when he, you know, he, it, it's funny. Like, I, I remember someone trying to stand up for Trump and go, well, at least one thing, he didn't get us into any wars while he was president. And I'm like, really? He, the, what about the war against the American people? The war against women? The war against- say he brought the war. He brought the war home. Yeah. Yeah, he brought yeah. it home. The war against the LGBT community, marginalized people, um, people with disabilities. Like, um, I'm going off on a tangent. It's just, it's just on my mind. I want to forget. Like, we have a, a family friend, and 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 basically their kids are are like are like my nephews and nieces, you know. Okay. And one of them, he, he's a severely bright, intelligent kid but he's autistic and he was on the night of the election, he was freaking out and worried and and terrified and having like panic attacks over the possibility of Trump becoming president. And I was like, like, why, why is he so, I was, I was concerned like how he knew so much about Trump and uh, cause he's a young man. And he was saying, you know, he, Trump hates me. Trump hates people like me. He wants to have us killed. And I'm like, oh, man, someone's let him see. Who's letting him see, like, the, the video of him mocking the disabled reporter and stuff? Because that's what he was getting at. That's what yeah. he and, – and so I was, like, I was pretty upset about that. And I'm like, why? Why does he even, like – Who's letting him get peruse the internet to find that stuff? Only for me to find out that the majority of young kids know about this. It's right. it's, it's in their whole 
it's in their community. These uh, there's disabled kids that think the president of the United States hates them and wants them killed because of his treatment of the disabled and like his mocking of them. And I was like, wow, that's how shitty it's gotten in politics that like, we have this juvenile like in, in the white house and he's got this whole group of people, the marginalized people terrified. Like, like, you know, th- this kid was terrified, man. Terrified. I think there, I think there are very few people period his own supporters included. I think there are very few people in the world that Donald Trump doesn't hate. I think he's a powerfully sick individual. Yeah, like I, I've been saying since day one when he was running, and I was like, I, you know, I don't think he's a white supremacist in the sense is I think he's a supremacist, period. He thinks he's better than everybody. He thinks he's better than his kids. I think the only person he doesn't think he's better than his daughter. He's and, a- I, and I'm not, yeah. being, I'm not making a joke about it. I think that he's a sick individual. He, and that, yeah, he's a supremacist, period. He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, you know? And all of this stuff that we've had to deal with the past four years, I'm not, you know, I've been like Nero playing fiddle because I, I, none of this surprises me. I knew the minute that guy got, when he, when it was, he was elected, I went, Oh, here we go. Right. It's going to let the show begin, man. It's going to be, it's going to be a rough ride, you know? And yeah, I, I actually thought it would be this rough. I mean, excluding the pandemic, none of this, none of this surprised me. I had, he, I had you know, very, he, well, I had very dark expectations, and he still managed to exceed them. You know, um, what I would say, sir, is I think neither one of us has any hesitation to do this again. Let's plan hmm. on doing this again when you are comfortable booking again, because I want to hear how the rebuild works. Does that work for yeah. you? Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna. I'm actually going to start doing some work, like for fall, like. Okay this week but yeah like I, i'm thinking come around like march we're gonna have a better like certain like lay of the land and like where we're at with infection rates and stuff because we're about ready to hit another high you know agreed i think i think by march we'll, we'll have a better lay of the land of like what touring is gonna touring or just just even local live shows will be like and I will come calling, sir. Awesome. For you? All right. Well, Ron Martinez, episode 24. Thank you so much. Thanks for asking me to do this, Dan. Oh, this, this was absolutely fun. I have, it, is, it is a privilege to uh, know so many people with, with, depth and, uh, with depth and mileage. I don't have a lot with as much shared mileage as I do you. So thanks again. Well... I, I I will counter that with saying that I, I feel privileged to have been your friend all these years. And I was really stoked when you started doing this podcast because I, I knew you'd be good at it. And like from the first episode with Kevin seconds and by about your third one, man, you really like, I thought you already nailed it. Like, and, and like, you've done some really good work here. Like the, the Sam McFeeders one was awesome. I'm going to say this because I think people will enjoy it. Uh, first off, that you gave me an aw shucks moment. Thank you, um, Sam McFeeders. One, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in here. You know, Sam is so unpredictable, and there was every chance that I was going to click on the Zoom, right? And he'd be sitting there dressed as King Tut or some fucking thing, right? And if he did, I was just gonna hit stop and roll the end credits, and I was gonna air that for the world. Like, you if know, he was, if he was at all trippy, instead, oh my god, he was a diamond, so forthcoming, so fun so real it was it it was a pleasure i i was actually that was the interview i i would have hoped to have heard from him Mm -hmm. um because he was he was so open and even self questioning some of the things that he had done in the past yeah and and most people don't have the the balls to to talk about that kind of stuff in public you know in Mm -hmm. a public forum and um I think he worries a little, he, he worries, like, I think he thinks more people dislike him than they do, but it was, it was a re I was really uh, pleasantly surprised and happy that it was such a, an open interview and that he was so open. 
Because he's well, not somebody. He's not somebody that's known. He's always been known as a contrarian prankster. You know. Yeah. Well, I don't want to give too much of your airtime to. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, thank you very much for your for your comments on the podcast. Thank you very much for your presence today. You and I have a date for this spring, sir. Awesome. All right, Ron Martinez, thanks again. All right, take care, Dan. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.